Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Luke Thompson, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Vanessa Sassant, a professor of religious studies at Marianapolis College in Quebec. Uh, professor Sassant is also a research fellow at the University of the Free State in South Africa and a research member at Sirius at the University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, today, we're going to be speaking about her recent book, Yashodara and the Buddha, published by Bloomsbury Academic this year, 2021. Professor Sasan has written on the idea of childhood in Buddhist texts, has done comparative studies um, of the, on the figures of Moses and the Buddha, co-authored a book on the image and idea of the fetus in various religious traditions, and has written on quite a bit more as well. And she has a, another book coming out soon from University of Hawaii Press entitled Jewels, Jewelry, and Other Shiny Things in the Buddhist Imaginary. Professor Sasan, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So the book we'll be discussing today is a bit unusual for this podcast in that rather than a dry tome contributing a little tiny argument or a bit of information (laughs) to the larger picture of Buddhist history and thought, uh, this book, Yashodara and the Buddha, is a novel. And more specifically, it's a fictional account of the life of Yashodara, the woman who married Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, and gave birth to Rahula, his son, or their son. So I just want to point out first for our listeners that while this isn't a work of historical fiction, uh, you haven't simply made it all up either. And at the end of the book, you have 26 pages of notes on the various sources that you used and as an initial question, I wanted to ask you about your motivation for writing the book. Uh, where exactly did the idea come from? Um, the idea came from a number of different experiences. Uh, on the one hand, I had just finished a really monster project. In 2013, I published a 500-page edited volume on a technicality. <laughs> On a DNA, right? That was exactly what you were just driving. The kind of book that nobody reads except for the 10 people who helped produce the book. <laughs> and I loved doing that project. It was a book on children and Buddhism. I had a great time. I learned a lot. It was an extraordinary experience. But when I finished it, uh, I felt like there was a piece of me that was becoming a bit co- uh, cookie cutter like, so that I was writing and researching and producing in a kind of regular rhythm. And once you learn that rhythm, it's very precise. It's very useful. It teaches you to have a good critical mind, to back up your sources, to speak clearly. But I felt like it was repetitive. And I had done a lot of it um, at that point in my career. And there was a piece of me that was genuinely wondering, like, can I do anything else? Or will I just keep doing this kind of, and I'll learn new things and I enjoy learning new things and doing new projects and I'm not done with my academic explorations, but there was definitely that personal question of, is this it? You know, will I just be doing the same kind of project until I die? (laughs) And there was a piece of me that wanted to know if I could do anything else. 
or if I could, if I could go beyond the bubble that I had created for myself. And so there was this question of expansion, of writing in a different way, creating a different voice. And so that was definitely one of my questions. And then there were a bunch of other questions about, um, you know, what it meant to tell a story from a different voice. One of the things that we do as academics is that we stand outside and look in. And we try to be as careful as we can in describing what we see and in explaining so that people can understand what we're looking at. And it's a very useful practice. Uh, it helps us understand the world. We look and we jot down notes and we question and we negotiate and we think about what we're looking at. But the process is that we stand outside. And the question that I started playing around with was, what happens if I go inside? And you know, it's an old question, the emic edict kind of question. Um, and we've all kind of done it to some degree. You go to a Buddhist country, if you're a scholar of Buddhism, and you're inside, <laughs> right? And you try meditation or you sit in a temple, you're inside in some way or another. So we've all kind of done this. I wanted to do it with the texts so that instead of standing outside of the texts, I wanted to go inside the text, which meant that I try to become a character in the text and see what it felt like to tell the story from within instead of without. And it was really exciting as a process. Great. So um, the depiction of Yashodara in Buddhist works, is it generally uniform or is there quite a bit of diversity? And how did you, um, and does your depiction differ? And that this gets into a question that I want to ask later on too, which is just how did you go about, I mean, you, my memory, correct me if I'm wrong, is that she's a yeah. pretty two-dimensional character in most traditional accounts. I mean, she's there, but she's not. It's not like you get inside her head. So, obviously, in this book, it's you know all inside her head, yes. not all of it, but a lot of it. And so, how did you go about sort of making her three-dimensional? Um, yeah, what was that decision-making process like? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because she's actually a lot more fleshed out than we know. We just haven't paid any attention to her. Um, and for good reason, our focus has been on the Buddha and his life story. And so we're always watching him. And so that's where all of our attention is directed. But if you start looking at the story differently and you start paying attention to different things, you start to realize there's a lot more material than maybe we knew or we were interested in um, for a long time. And so she seemed completely two-dimensional and uninteresting. She was just kind of there as the wife. I think for many of us as scholars, I think that's true for many Buddhist practitioners as well. I think there's a real absence of awareness of who she was. But then if you start looking more carefully, you realize there is a fully fleshed out character there. Um, and we just had to look. And so I didn't have to create, I mean, there was a lot of stuff I did have to make up. Um, and she's really only strongly in the story when she has a part to play in his story. So in that sense, she's limited, right? When the Buddha has a moment with her, she shows up. We don't have stories about her on her own very much. So we don't know stories about her youth. We don't know how she was born or what her childhood was like. All of that stuff is kind of not there because the point of Buddhist texts is to tell the story of him. But when his story engages with her, many of the early authors really created a very powerful character. And she's strong and she's passionate and she's emotional and she has things to say and she experiences loss in very profound, articulate ways. That what I started to realize was she becomes the voice of suffering 
that he is trying to understand. And so there's a really interesting pairing that is happening with her in some of the sources where he's on this quest to understand suffering and she's left behind in the palace suffering. Um, and, and so she's, she's a lot more complex than I think we considered her to be for a very long time. We just had to go and look for her. Great. And, and then, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, again, uh, another question about um, sort of how you went about about sort of, you know, producing the, the content of the novel. Um, you know, you're, you're describing daily life in this, you know, time of the Buddha. And so you necessarily have to depict, you know, various aspects of daily life and the physical surroundings. Um, and I'm just going to give listeners a, a, a brief example from the book in which you describe the temple in which the baby Siddhartha Buddha to be was blessed shortly after his birth. And you write, the temple was built with an open courtyard. Blue stone tiles covered the floor in an intricate design that created an impression of flowing water. The goddess's sanctuary was firmly rooted at the center, draped by an extraordinary jasmine vine. The perfume produced by its small white flowers was so strong in the rainy season that my parents could smell it from the road. Directly in front of the sanctuary, a stone lion with fangs exposed stood to attention, facing the closed curtain and guarding the goddess within. And I remember there are a few other parts where, you know, someone grabs a bed railing, which is made of a particular type of wood or something like that. So how did you kind of go about, um, um, yeah, deciding how to describe the physical environment and sort of what people and sort of the behavior that people might have uh, exhibited? That's such a good question. Um, and that I had such fun doing that. So I had, so what I found when I started looking at the literature is that there are these lavish, powerful scenes of Yashoda that we hadn't really engaged with. So I had material to tell me how the story was going to go. And these early, like Ashvagosha is such an extraordinary depiction of her. And um, there's medieval Nepali material that's really passionate about her. There's some great stuff, Sri Lankan material. So I had a real voice for her that I, from her that I didn't need to create because I had her voice. Um, then what I had to do is create a setting. And what I started, like I, I had to imagine things that wasn't there. So the literature will give me some things, but the literature doesn't tell me that the bed frame was made of rosewood or that there's a jasmine vine with the temple, right? Like all of these things I created and I just had fun creating it. I just made this stuff up. And so some of this stuff was used based on what I know was available in India at the time. Uh, some of it comes from like experiences I had traveling through India or Nepal, things that I'd seen or engaged with. And some is just completely made up. <laughs> Like the jasmine vine. I mean, I don't even know if there are jasmine vines, but just the, I just needed to have jasmine smelling from the street. Um, and so I just had fun. And so I was researching all the time about what was, like I, things I didn't know, like was blue paint available in India 2,000 or 2,500 years ago? So then I start digging around to find out, is blue paint available yet? Because indigo is a very particular color and it didn't come up as early as other paints. So then I start learning about that. And I just had fun trying to create a world and learn about, details that wasn't part of my traditional studies and it was very pleasurable yeah i imagine you learned a lot about just like the material culture of the yeah. uh period so i could tell um, you all about indigo now yeah. <laughs> um so 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 one of the things and correct me if i'm wrong but one of the things that's not covered much in buddhist literature is the quality of the relationship between siddhartha and yashodara 
And in your novel, you um, in this particular novel, you obviously you kind of have to make up a good deal of that. And you depict them as having this very close, uh, loving relationship, really this kind of beautiful marriage until, you know, Siddhartha, you know, decides to jump ship. <laughs> um, <laughs> deadbeat dad. Um, <laughs> but so why did you decide? I mean, what was your decision for uh, depicting the relationship in that way rather than, you know, the Buddha always forgets to take out the trash and he's just like sitting around <laughs> watching the belly or whatever it is. Um, um, oh, that's a good question. I had to make an argument for that. So that was actually something that I, I eventually wrote an academic article with my argument for why I think they had such a strong marriage. So I published that after I published the book, but I made my case <laughs> because it's a real question and I had to justify it because there's really no obvious reason, like what would have their relationship been like? And on the one hand, you can imagine it being a completely one-dimensional relationship that she's just kind of attached to him and he's above it all. And then he leaves and he doesn't even glance back and he moves on with his life. And if she's crying, it's her problem, right? So you could just completely seeing this as one way. But I refuse to believe that. So I had to like mine the sources and make my case, and I did. And my case was based on, first of all, one detail that I came across in so many hagiographies of the Buddha's life, is that there's this very odd thing that nobody paid attention to for a long time, so I had a lot of space to give it my own interpretation. It's a detail, it's often translated in English as um, the seven conatals. That when the Buddha takes his final rebirth, this is very like odd, quirky thing that nobody pays attention to, usually, that when the Buddha takes his final rebirth to be born from Maya and he plunges out of Tusita heaven and enters her womb in the shape of an, ele uh, an elephant, what so many texts add is this odd line. And I get it in Sanskrit, you get it in Chinese, you get it in Pali, is this line that at the same time that he took rebirth, seven other beings also took rebirth at the same time. And all those beings, they're listed, they're really important beings that play a pivotal role in his life story. So you have Rahula, no, it's not Rahula, Ananda, and you have um, Chana and the, the, the horse Kantaka, and you have the Mahabodhi trees rooted at that moment, and you have Yashodra. And so they all are taking rebirth with him. And so I decided that if each of these be, and there's no explanation and there's no commentary, so why are they all taking rebirth at the same time? And my conclusion was they're all pivotal characters in his life story. And so they all have to manifest at the same time with him, that they're going to play an important role. So she can't just be a one-dimensional harem girlfriend that nobody cares about. She has to be important. And then if you look at the Jatakas, you find that he's married to her over and over and over again. And so what I started to read into this, and I may be wrong, but I think I had good grounds for my interpretation, was that you have this really romantic, multi-life narrative where the two of them are married lifetime after lifetime after, like they keep going back to each other. And the Jatakas are so complicated, like they're, they're not all the same. So in some Jatakas, she's pining for him and desperate and running after him and like chasing him down in the forest. In others, he's chasing her and like literally moving mountains to go get at her and she tosses him to the side like she doesn't care. Like it's just one story after another. There are stories where they fight. There are stories where they're madly connected. Like there's so many different stories and they're not, there's like no consistent explanation or pattern of behavior. What's the only pattern is they keep going back to each other. So I thought you can't possibly have 
a great cosmic being like the future Buddha, who is the all-powerful, the most amazing, the most supreme being in the universe according to Buddhist narrative, go back to being reborn with her lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, then taking final rebirth with her, and she be of no consequence. So she must be his equal. She must be as powerful as he is. And therefore, I think they must have had a very strong bond in their last life, which is what makes him leaving her so devastating. Because you can imagine her thinking, well, we're bound. So if you're going to go off and be the Buddha, you have to take me with you, which is what Ram does with Sita. So why doesn't he take her? Like there's a precedent here. Yeah. That's my case. Sure, sure. No, that's fascinating. Um, so in in um, so you have a chapter in in the book in which Yashodara finds out that she's pregnant, and and right before she finds it, realizes that she's pregnant, she has this dream, and the content of the dream is basically the Vasantara Jataka, and so for listeners who don't know it, this is like this extremely a uh, popular tale about a uh, previous life of the Buddha in which in to perfect the uh, perfection of generosity, he gives away his uh, children uh, and his wife. Um, and, and, and after she, and so in your novel, uh, after she wakes up, she, um, Yashodara worries that her own husband, the Buddha Siddhartha is going to give her and their unborn child away. Right. And, and, um, I mean, I, I should mention here, I mean, I know this is an interview uh, of you, not me, but I should mention one of the things that I really saw in reading this book is some parallels, because I've used Vasantara Jataka in a lot of my classes as this kind of thing where on the one hand, it's it shows the sort of, ant, in my opinion, like anti-humanist sort of tendencies of like Buddhist soteriological aspirations, like, you know, and, and in order to have this like universal love, you have to abandon specific love. But then on the flip side, uh, it's incredibly, you know, hu- it's incredibly humane and human in that, you know, you've got the Buddha crying. And obviously, uh, you know, Steve Collins, other written about this, like even traditional Buddhist audiences have had like mi- rather mixed feelings about this story. For sure. Um, so like what was your and, 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 and in reading this book, I really saw that the, these parallels actually between that story and the Buddha, the Buddha's departure story, which. I'd never really thought about because usually the de- the departure of the Buddha is just told from his perspective and like, you know, you don't sort of see the suffering that he leaves behind in his wake um, as he, you know, goes on this quest for these higher aspirations. Um, so what w- what was your idea in bringing in this particular story into the book? Um, well, I think exactly for what you're saying, that there is this these parallels that are there, that when we think about the Buddhist story, we have to think beyond just the immediate story of his final life, that his final life story is actually part of a much larger cosmic narrative that's repetitive, right? So just like the fact that they're married together lifetime after, I I think that's part of the story. We can't just see him married to Yashodara in their final life as the whole story. We have to see that there's this length of time behind them that is playing its part. And I think that's true also for his engagement with her. So the Visantra story is so important in Buddhism. Um, it's so important that you teach it in your class, right? This is like we teach it. I mean, kids learn it in Sunday school. It's painted on temple walls. It's such an important narrative. And it's so complicated because it's so upsetting. Um, and it really gives you this sense of tension that 
this goal for awakening makes a mess of everything. And he makes a mess of everything in his final life as well. So it's not just Yashodra who's heartbroken after he leaves. Kantaka dies, like the horse, I mean, spoiler alert, but, but you know, Kantaka dies and Chana is miserable and the king is devastated. Like, I mean, everyone is devastated, right? And so there's this weight of the story that as you have this heroic quest, you also have this devastation and they always go together. They're never, you can't just have this quest for awakening in some kind of sanitated, sanit sanitized bubble where nobody's affected by it. Even something great like awakening from the Buddhist narrative, Buddhists themselves tell it as super complicated because the result is you lose somebody. Even though they're doing something wonderful, it's still not an easy thing to engage with. And so the Visanta Jataka is there to, to show that there's a pattern to this, that this has a long history, and it's her story too. Because when we think of Visanta Jataka, we think about his quest for awakening, and he does all these awful things of giving away his children and his wife. But what it also is, is her story. She knows that he's going to give away the children. She wakes up in the middle of the night with this horrible nightwear and goes to see him and says, I had a dream that somebody was ripping my heart out. So she knows. And he just pushes her away. He lies to her. He says, it's indigestion. Like, what a terrible thing to say to her. And he knows he's about to do it. So it's her story too. It's something that is lived collectively and not, I think we've been way too individualistic in our understanding of Buddhism, we have to see every character as part of a larger whole, right? This is Paticca Samupada. Everything arises because one thing arises, right? And so if the Buddha arises, it means his entire community and network of relationships is arising with him. And then in, in, in addition, another thing I really appreciated about the, the book was that um, you also brought in non sort of Buddhist stories and specifically you, uh, you bring in the, the, um, the uh, the story of the sort of female warrior Durga, um, who's I think Prudanas, if I remember correctly, and then there's the Ra the Ra the Ramayana, and you have this scene in which uh, you you introduce the story of Serpa uh, Serpanaka, who's Ravana's sort of demonist sister. Um, you introduce in the story by uh, presenting it as like a play that they're a theatrical piece that they're watching at the, at the palace. And then also you bring in Sita, um, Ram's, Ram's wife, who eventually gets, you know, um, knocked out. I couldn't help but think of the uh, Sita Sings the Blues um, <laughs> uh, movie when I was reading this. But what, I mean, what, what was your intention here? And, um, and obviously, you know, one can see some parallels between Ram and the Buddha and that, you know, in both cases, they're sort of the protagonists and seen as sort of the perfection of virtue. But then in both cases, their wives sort of uh, get the short end of the stick. Um, I mean, they're not exactly parallels. So, I mean, what was your intention in bringing in these stories? Um, and then in particular, you bring in this alternative ending of the Ramayana, uh, which, I mean, you didn't make this up. This is one of the versions where at the very end, when Ram goes to accept his wife back uh, to the kingdom after he exiles her, because people are sort of thinking she's been unfaithful, so shouldn't isn't a proper queen, she says no, and then she's swallowed up by the by the by the earth by the by the uh, earth goddess. What was what like? How did you? I mean, I really liked this, but how did this idea come about to f bring them in? 
And what exactly were you trying to do with that? That's such a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I think I, I did that very consciously bringing in these narratives because I'm, I mean, I, I study the tradition much more from the South Asian side. And so it's, I think it's a different experience if you're studying it um, within the Chinese context or the Japanese context. But when you're studying it from the South Asian side, we're very, you become very conscious very quickly, hopefully, that there's a lot of stories that are quite similar and that there's a kind of flavor of Indian storytelling. And by removing Buddhism from its Indian background and telling the Buddhist story in isolation, it's as though it came out of nowhere, right? And that there's no parallels. There's no similar. It's like it's, it, it exists in a vacuum. And I think we've done that quite often, um, less so in academic discourse, but certainly in popular Buddhist context. But it seems so obvious to me that this story is part of classical Indian storytelling and that it's dramatic and it's playful and it's magical and it's, I mean, it's just big, right? I mean, the Buddha is like, he's not humble and he's not, he's not like a wallflower. He's, he's extravagant. And when he wants to make a point, he makes a jeweled walkway in the sky and he struts on it over, you know, expanding the universe. I mean, it's just, he's an amazing character. And if you see him in context of all these other stories, it starts to make more sense. So I wanted very much to integrate him and integrate this story into the larger framework of Indian storytelling so that they all bleed into each other and we don't feel that disconnect that we often create. Um, so bringing it, so Durga's story of the battle of Mahisasura, where she slays the demon that I, is such a powerful story, it was not written you know, 2000 years ago. It's, it's quite a late story, but I figured, you know, oral storytelling, and I say this in my notes, is something that goes on and on and on before we finally write it. And so I imagine that story floating around at the same time that the Buddhist story is floating around at the same time as the Ramayana, even though the Ramayana is only about 2000 years old, that all of these stories were in construction in tandem with each other. And so this book had to be written and constructed in relationship to those other stories. I, I can't imagine that these characters didn't hear these stories and that it didn't inf influence how, I mean, if these characters existed, which obviously that's neither here nor there, but as characters, they would have known these stories. And so I had to tell them and it put, places them in context in a much more, I hope, authentic way. Yeah. Um, so w w one thing that happens in this in this book is that you um you you sort of bring to the forefront a lot of strong female characters who you know are obviously hit hidden or ignored or you know not really developed in the sort of traditional buddhist literature um and even i mean this was really interesting even this uh this tree in the uh in the peacock garden um at the palace of the king and his son, the Buddha to be Siddhartha, um, and there's this. This was the, I guess, the garden that was his mother Maya's sort of favorite place. And there's this tree there that it's it's a sort of sacred tree, but it's also stand in. It seems for um, the the um, for a tree goddess and also for Maya for the Buddha's um, uh, mother. And there's even this very powerful scene where he's in the peacock garden, wondering whether to depart or not from the palace. And uh, he even sort of asked the tree slash his mother, you know, for some sort of advice. Um, and along with that, you you bring to the forefront a lot of sort of female-related uh, 
issues, maybe not issues, but female related matters that simply wouldn't have been in traditional Buddhist texts. Like there's the, uh, you know, the birth, the birth itself. And then like, you know, uh, the beginning of the menstrual cycle for Yashodara when she's younger. Um, and then also this, uh, what you call the, um, after her birth, when she basically, I mean, it's sort of, uh, sounds like postpartum depression of sorts. And, um, so how did you go about deciding which female characters to sort of emphasize or to um, expand upon or bring to the forefront or develop as characters and which sort of um, matters that might be ignored in traditional Buddhist literature? How did you decide upon which one of those, which ones of those to kind of emphasize? Um, It was not so much a decision of which one to do so much as just these were the women in this woman's life and therefore they had to have been important to her. So it was kind of the opposite instead of, you know, who do I want to emphasize? It was more, you know, who would be important in her life and therefore you have to tell this, their story. So her mother becomes a really important character um, because her mother would be, and I couldn't imagine any other way. The scene, the, the, having the tree kind of becoming a replacement for Maya and having a life and a character and having movement and having almost a say in the story seemed very important. It just kind of came naturally when I wrote it. It just came out and then I was like, oh, I just created a living tree. But it worked in terms of my experience of South Asian love of nature and engagement with the natural world. There are so many times when you're in South Asia where a tree, a rock, a mountain is deified or rendered alive in some kind of way and having their own agency and their own powers. And this is all over South Asia. And you get it from the Himalayas all the way down to the the, the southern tip and into Sri Lanka is this relationship with the natural world this way, that natural world has agency. Um, and the natural world can be sacred and special and, and have relationships with humans. And so the amount of trees that are worshipped in South Asia, it's everywhere. And it's so wonderful. You can't walk a couple of blocks without, even like in a dusty Kathmandu city, you'll be walking and all of a sudden you'll pass by a tree that's being worshipped or that, you know, somebody has tied some string around or placed a, you know, a flag on it or something. Um, and so this seemed like something that needed to be in the book of this relationship with the world where the world itself was alive and not static and not just kind of an object of material, but that the material was alive. And so it just came naturally. It seemed like something that should happen with regards to, but it's not in the literature that this tree exists. This is something I created, but is the result of my experiences of being in South Asia and learning about it. Um, with regards to all the other feminine stuff, like the the bleeding and the postpartum sadness that she has after she gives birth and all the emphasis that I have on women's lives, that also was not so much a choice as just something that seemed inevitable. That if a woman, if I'm going to be telling a woman's story, then her menstrual cycle is going to be part of the story. Um, and her, the way she gives birth will be part of the story, right? And so it, it wasn't like a feminist act so much as just an awareness of this is women's lives. And women's lives include these bodily experiences. We're not just brains in a jar. I think we are now in COVID the least embodied we've ever been. And it's kind of frightening. And so we're more likely to imagine that we're brains in a jar than we have ever done and not have a connection to our bodies. But I think for most of human history, we have known that we are 
minds inside bodies or minds that are bodies. And those bodies have experiences that inform our minds and our hearts and our way of living and interacting with the world. Your menstrual cycle, if you are bleeding, you cannot function in the world in the same way than when you're not. Until like tampons and pads were developed with the kind of formula that they have today that can keep you going all day long, the fact that you had your menstrual cycle happening, that you were bleeding, would change the entire quality of your day, right? And your relationships and what you can do and how you can move about in the world. That had to affect these characters, right? So I just think we don't have that information usually because it was mostly male authors and they don't know or wanted to talk about what that experience was like. But as a woman writing the story in a woman's voice with a female character, she had to have a relationship to her menstrual cycle. It just seemed like it's supposed to happen. Great. No, um, no, that was, that was, that, that, um, that was great. Um, so turning to, uh, Yashodara's husband <laughs> for a second, also known as the Buddha, uh, what, how did you go about depicting him? Because, I mean, in my reading, he doesn't, I mean, he starts off as this kind of spoiled child and, you know, not exactly the, you know, seven steps, you know, this will be my final rebirth, you know, grandiose sort of figure that we're used to. But then he actually doesn't, I mean, he comes across in the end as like a pretty, um, you know, solid, solid guy, so to speak. <laughs> Thank but, goodness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, you're not vilifying him, certainly. No. And you're not, but you're you're also not like sort of celebrating him. The, I mean, how did you? Because obviously you had to decide how am I going to depict the Buddha in all of this. That so, was that was yeah. the hardest thing to decide. <laughs> so like menstrual cycle, so not hard to figure out, right? She had to have a menstrual cycle. She was definitely going into postpartum when her husband's going to leave her. Like what a disaster of a situation. Obviously she's going to be upset. But how do you depict the Buddha? I agonized over that. Like that was not a natural, just came out of me. That was something that I wrote and I rewrote and I like scratched my head. I had a very hard time with trying to figure him out. So, and the early stuff, not so much because the literature is very clear. He was, you know, lavishly spoiled and he had everything he could possibly need and all of that. So I was following the tradition in that. I never vilified him. He always is kind of above it but he's also part of it. And so, you know, like that scene where he's with the archery when he's young and Devadatta is making fun of him. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't even blink. He doesn't care. So he's above it all, but he's definitely in this kind of very spoiled context. Um, what was hard was having him return as an awakened being. That's what I found really difficult is I needed to figure out how to, create a scene in which Yashoda and the Buddha talk to each other who were once husband and wife, but now he's an awakened being and she's not. And the literature doesn't really give us very much on that. So I couldn't copy any of the early texts on this. I had to really figure it out myself. And I rewrote that chapter where they talk to each other so many times because he was now a Buddha. As a Bodhisattva, he could be messy it's forgivable because he's still on his way. But once he becomes the Buddha, I don't want to vilify him. I don't want to disparage him. I have to recognize that for the tradition, he's virtually a god. 
Um, he is the highest being in the cosmos. How does a being like that talk? And how does he talk to his ex-wife? It was a very difficult scene to write. So I only had one and I didn't want him. It was like I couldn't have him show up too often. It really had to be her story because writing in his voice was extremely stressful for me. And it was and it was hard because I was mad at him. Right. I mean, I just I could like, how do you wrap your mind around this man leaving her behind after all those lifetimes of shared experience? So I had to process my own frustrations with him and come to peace with him so that I could write that scene. So it was almost like a, my own kind of therapy until, you know, it was, it was a tough scene. It was the hardest chapter to write was when they, he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine that being a uh, diff- Yeah. Just incredibly difficult. Painful. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also just how to depict that, you know, new sort of relationship. Um, it's, it's, it's not analogous exactly, but I can remember being in Sri Lanka and seeing mothers bowing to their sons who had become monks and just, just, it's just doing so bizarre with this, like, you know, actually, that's a great analogy. That's perfect. I it really, it's that anomaly of everything changing, but it's mm-hmm. still you. That's a perfect example. I love yeah. that. Thank you. So, um, so, so one thing I w- wanted to ask about is the, um, is the reception of this book, because I can imagine everything from, you know, what a breath of fresh air and, you know, it doesn't put me to sleep as you know, <laughs> some academic titles might, um, to all the way to, you know, this is heresy, you know, I mean, how, I'm what, waiting what, for the heresy. I haven't gone it yet. <laughs> yeah, I, well. I was expecting the heresy. I was bracing myself for the heresy. Um, I mean, I was very, very careful, and the notes are there in the hopes of like holding off the heretical accusation. Um, but you know, notes don't always do that. Wendy Doniger is a great example. She has a million footnotes, and she's still been banned and and had her her books, you know, pulped. So, but I, I tried to be as careful as I could, and I clarify my position in my introduction, and then I wrote what I wrote, and it maybe it'll come. But for now, uh, thankfully, I have not been vilified. Um, I think I'm really clear about what who I am and what I was trying to do and how I did it. And maybe that will kind of stave that off or maybe it's coming. There was one, um, it got reviewed quite a bit in India. And there, most of the reviews were surprisingly really, I, I kept waiting for it and it didn't happen. People were just like, oh, I'm so glad you told this story. I didn't even know she existed. Or I'd, like, there was a lot of excitement that they got access to a woman's story. And so it just gives you a sense of how much this, these stories are not being told enough. Um, there was no accusation of how come you told it or, you know, who are you to tell it or you told, but there was one journalist who was very upset with me. Um, and she vilified me. <laughs> she said, this is not the story the way my grandmother told it. This is not who she was. I disagree with this, this, this. And she didn't look at any of my notes and she didn't, she clearly didn't know the tradition. She had the tradition as it was told to her and that was the right way. And she was horrified that I had done this. And then she posted her article everywhere <laughs> so that it kept coming up on every feed and everywhere you go. So she just kind of filled, you know, the online world with her article for a while, but then, you know, it passed and it's been fine. And people have been uh, really, really kind and really happy with the book and really excited to hear a woman's voice. And I think it speaks to how much we were ready for this and how much we want to hear women's voices and uh, are, are waiting for it. We're hungry for it. So uh, I think my timing was actually okay for that. 
And it's probably important to point out for listeners, too, who aren't, you know, versed in sort of Buddhist history that, I mean, this, the story of the Buddha's life, too, is, I mean, comes comes together as a as a coherent story. You know, I can't remember how many centuries after he's around, but it's it's not sure. like that's some sort of, you know, historical depiction at all. I mean, it's no. Just I don't know. So, um, These yeah. are layers of stories on stories told upon stories. So this is just one more story, and that's how I frame it, that I'm telling one more story in a long line of storytellers. Um, and I hope that that framing is what helps people understand that this is not some kind of final authority or formal declaration of how it was. It's an imagined story, um, but it's, part it's participating in a long line of storytelling. And so thankfully, so far, it's been okay. <laughs> So, um, I, I, as, as, as a last question, I just wanted to ask you, I know you have the book coming out on jewels, jewelry, and other shiny mm -hmm. things, Buddhist imaginary. Um, do you want to just sort of give us a quick word about what that's going to be about, or alternatively tell us what you're, if, if you have a new project you're working on? Well, the jewels book is, it's a fun, it's an edited volume and it definitely comes out of my experience of this book is realizing how much we're missing. And so not only are we missing women's voices, we're missing the fabulous of Buddhism. I think we were, we've, we've become very serious about Buddhism. And one of the things that struck me while I was working on this book is all the jewels I kept talking about and the gold and the pearls. And then you go to any Buddhist country and everything's dripping of beauty and color. I mean, it's just so fabulous. And we're so strict about it. I don't know why we talk about it in such like austere terms. So I just, I, I wrote to a bunch of colleagues and I was like, I want to do a book on jewels. Let's do it. And everybody was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we did this edited volume together um, and it was a lot of fun. And it's all just about the lavishness of Buddhism. It's very academic. It's not an easy read for students, but it was a lot of fun to do. But what I'm working on now is the sequel to this book. Because I had so much write, fun writing a novel, I decided to write a second. And um, it's this. it picks up where this story leaves off. And the women are now, they've left the palace and they're going to ask the Buddha for permission to join the order. And if you know the story, it doesn't go well. <laughs> so it's another kind of rough story where the Buddha does not look amazing, I have to say. And I'm struggling with how to make him not look too terrible. But uh, it's, a, it's a difficult story to write as well because it just takes place over a few days, whereas Yashodara took place over a whole lifetime. And it's just the women's march into the woods to ask the patriarchal authorities to recognize the women as women have been doing over and over again throughout history. So that's what I'm working on now. Great, great. Well, um, I wanted to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to um, speak with me today and talk about your book. Uh, um, and yeah, that's it for today for New Books in Buddhist Studies, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.